Okay. Well, it's good to see you guys, and thank you for enduring my... Sometimes I get on autopilot, and uh, I'm just going up here, and I'm pushing Melinda off because she was supposed to do the welcome, and I was like, and I just told her, like I said, here's how you're supposed to do it, and then for whatever reason, I just clicked in autopilot, and here I was up here, so my wife's been married to that for how many years? 35? 35. Sheer bliss? Good answer. All right. I got one clap. That's, that's all right. I'll take it. I'll take it. Okay. Um, well, hey, I'm going to pray and uh, just I'm going to slip into our prayer. We've got a little over 60 students that are going to be making their way back over the pass uh, from camp, winter camp. So um, if you would keep them in your, your, your prayers and thoughts as well till they, get, uh, till they get here. But let me pray and ask for God's blessing. Father, we thank you. We love you for all of who you are and what you've done and what you are continuing to do in our lives, Lord. And I pray your blessing over this time of teaching, and in particular, Lord, this chapter. There are 66 books that you've given us. I don't know how many chapters are, but Lord, this might be the most difficult one of them all. And I pray that you'll speak through me in a way that would bring understanding, it would bring hope, it would bring conviction to all who are here and those that are tuned in live stream, Lord God. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, we are in our study of the book of Romans. If you'll get your Bibles out to your table of contents, you'll see you've got an Old Testament, New Testament. And the book of Romans is the sixth book down. And you'll be at chapter one. We are going to be looking at chapter number nine. And it is a humdinger. Uh, I was so thankful to get through the first one. And I thought to myself, I only got to do this one more time. This is tough sledding here. But I want to start with a question, and let's play along here. How many of you have ever questioned God? <laughs> Just about all of us. If, you know, um, it's, it's, it's a natural thing to do. Um, now, here's the other question is, do you think it's okay to question him? I mean, I'll say one thing. We've got the book of Psalms. Go see how many times God's questioned in the book of Psalms. And I am so thankful for the Psalms because uh, there are people in God's word who give uh, words to my, my feelings and my emotions at times. And, and certainly they uh, give words to, to questions that I have. And today we actually are uh, going to be looking at a chapter that, that I will just say personally, as best I can remember, this has been the hardest chapter I've, I've taught out of God's word, without a doubt. And I've been asking people to pray for me and, and kind of in preparation, and I'm very thankful for that because I really feel like that, that, was, that got me through. Uh, and you'll see, I think in a moment, um, you're going to read chapter 9, we're going to read chapter 9, and you're going to see, my goodness, there's some questions here, and there's some tough questions. And the, the reality of it is, questions are inevitable. We're always going to have questions. And tough questions, and the, the, the sobering reality is, we're not always going to have the answers on this side of eternity. We're going to have to live within this, this tension. And I shared with you a, a, a couple verses from Isaiah that for me many years ago in college when I was really wanting to understand some of these harder things about God and getting frustrated at not being able to do it and even questioning at times, you know, uh, the validity of the Christian faith. God says in Isaiah 55, 8, 9, I read, him, I read it last week, I'll read it one more time. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts 
and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as high as heaven, for as high, excuse me, for as heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And that is there for us to realize that there are going to be things that we try to understand that we just can't. And we have to put them into this Isaiah 55 bucket. I mean, I doubt there's anybody in here, I certainly haven't read anybody that can explain fully the Trinity. God, one God, three persons. How does that happen? How do you fully get your mind around that? Or how about the incarnation? God who is spirit becoming flesh and bone in which Jesus was fully God and fully man. How do you understand that? Well, let's throw in what we're going to talk about today, what we started last week. And that is God's sovereignty and humanity's free will. They coexist. They are in the scripture. And they don't do damage to the other by being present. And it's just, it's just really, really challenging. And we have to live within the tension and understand that. And so uh, that's, chapter 9 is maybe arguably the um, strongest, that's the longest um, shot at an explanation that, that involves the, 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 the God's sovereignty. And, and so... Just be ready for that as we, as we really kind of, let me go back to where we began just so you can kind of, let's, let's get off the ground here rather quickly. I'm going to read to you from chapter 8 verses 28, 29, and 30 and then we'll skip to chapter 9. But listen to what Paul, as God inspires him to write, verse 28, he says, For we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. It's like, wow, okay. Mm, get my mind around that. And what God says to us in these things that are really hard to understand, what he is really saying, and again, I said this last week, but it's so important that we remember it. And that is God says, I cannot be tamed. You, you will not figure me out in, in the way you want to figure me out entirely. It's just not going to happen. I'm God. I'm omniscient. I know all things. I'm infinite. You're finite. And so because God will not be tamed, we have to take passages like that and we have to do our very best to understand, again, the tension between God's sovereignty and human free will. And the tendency is we run to one end or the other. We tend to, because that's where we're comfortable. We, we don't like living in tension. And so if we run to the God's sovereignty side, we, we give up understanding the importance of free will. We, we give up understanding and, and appreciating our freedom and the freedom of other people and the importance of decisions. But if we run to the free will side, well then, uh, be, be, and, and we fully embrace the freedom and, 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 the, and the importance of the decisions, we, we can give up the, or, or not understand fully the God's sovereignty side which has the importance of the fact that God is in control of everything and he's a good, loving, benevolent God. So if we run to either side, we lose out. And the places to be is, is somewhere in the middle. And what happens is when I'm reading God's word and I come across the section, a passage that is about free will, well then I, I, I teach that and I, and I learn that and I understand that and I, and I embrace the importance, again, of making good decisions and the blessing of freedom. But when I come across like chapter 9, which really shouts of God's sovereignty, well, then I embrace God's sovereignty and I embrace the fact that God is in control of everything and I'm thankful that he's a good, loving, benevolent God. 
And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at these, there's some tough questions. I think there'll be more than the ones I'll address, but um, that's all the time we have is, is really to do just that. I, I do want to go back to what I read just a moment ago, and I want you to notice that this amazing unbreakable chain that's, that it's called of God's work that I just read to you in, in chapter 8, 28, 29, and 30. That there's a purpose there that God says that all this wonder and this awe and this amazing work of God exists. And he says it is to be conformed in the image of his son. So when you're here and I'm here and when you're doing whatever you're doing and I'm doing whatever I'm doing. Do you realize and, and if you don't we need to realize that God works in us so that we will be conformed into the likeness of Christ. The selflessness, the sacrificial love, the patience and all that Jesus was and continues to be uh, as he sits at the right hand of God. So that is the goal. That's what we're shooting for. That's the objective. So with that in mind, let's skip to chapter 9 now. Or, you know, we, we covered chapter 8 last week. You can pick up on it or, or the last part of chapter 8. I'm going to actually start in verse 6. Let me tell you what verses 9, uh, 1 through 5 say. And it is Paul who is Jewish. And he is lamenting, he is sad that he is writing this letter to a church in Rome that is predominantly Gentile. Gentile means non-Jew. There are some Jews there. But God's chosen people, where God started to reveal himself, there are so few. As a matter of fact, in verses 25 through 29, Paul refers to them as the remnant. It's a very common um, description of God's people. There, there's a remnant, there, there's there's a smaller number than the physical lineage uh, that comes from Abraham, etc. And he's, he's lamenting, he's saddened over the privilege that they have as being God's chosen people and yet they reject Jesus who came from uh, Israel, who was Jewish himself, who was the Messiah, the one that was foretold would come. And Paul's just, he, Paul says, I would rather me not know him than for my, my brothers and sisters to know him. That's how strongly he felt about it so with that in mind with this idea that the Jews just seem to not be present and and they seem to be lost and it kind of there's a question that's kind of behind what he says in verse 6 I'm going to read verses 6 through 13 first if you'll follow with me he says but it is not as though the word of God has failed for not all who were descended from Israel are Israel Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants on the contrary your offspring will be traced through Isaac that is, it is not, the, it's not children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was Abraham's wife. And not only that, but also Rebekah received a promise when she became pregnant by one man, our ancestor Isaac. Isaac was one of Abraham's sons. For though her sons had not been born yet, they were, they were twins, Jacob and Esau. For her, though, though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad. So that God's purpose according to election might stand. Not from works but from the one who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob but I have hated Esau. I mean you hear that you kind of go, okay. All right, I got some questions coming out of that. And Paul is addressing the fact that again, you have God's chosen people who are just not around. They've rejected Jesus. And so the question behind that is this kind of idea, wait a minute then, is, is God's promise not good? 
Can God be counted upon? That's really the first question that, that Paul's kind of addressing. It's behind what he says in verse 6. Can God really be counted on? If he made this promise, this eternal promise with the people of God, then how can it, they be in the state that they're in right now? And Paul's very quick, if you notice, he says that not everyone who's an Israelite is truly an Israelite. And not everyone who's physically descended from Abraham is really a descendant of Abraham. And to really understand what he's saying, we have to kind of go back and recognize that God, when he decided to reveal himself to the world beyond his creation through people, he chose the Hebrews. And in particular, he chose Abraham. He called Abraham. He elected Abraham. He chose Abraham. He said, Abraham, I'm going to reveal myself through you and your many descendants, and you're going to be a blessing to all the nations. That was a promise he made, Genesis chapter 12. And then that promise would get passed down. It got, and it would get passed down to Isaac in this case, and then it would get passed down to Jacob. So Abraham had sons, and he had Isaac and Ishmael. And God does the unconventional thing. Just like you might expect, the oldest would get the inheritance. The oldest would have the promise passed down as the covenant people of God that God would work very closely with in this revelation that he has of, to the world that he wants to bless all nations. But he doesn't choose Ishmael. He chooses Isaac, the younger one. And Ishmael actually becomes the father of the Arab nations. But the promise doesn't go through Ishmael. It goes through Isaac. And then Isaac has, or not, not him, but Rebecca has two sons, they're twins, Jacob and Esau. And again, God does the unconventional. He does not choose Esau, the older one, the one who came out first. He, he chooses Jacob. And he's choosing, he, he's elect, and the, the promise is getting passed down. And, and Paul's trying to get them to understand, and, and as, he, as a Jew talking to other Jews, he doesn't want them to think that God's promise has failed. He says, you're not considering how God is moving and operating and acting. He says what, I read it to you, he goes, it's not, for I could almost wish to be, well, I'm sorry. He says, neither are they children because they are Abraham's descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. There's the promise going through Isaac. He says, that is not, the, that is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise. Those whose faith, like Abraham, is in God and the promise that God gave them. That is truly the children of God, the children of the promise. And it's a much smaller number. And it's smaller because God is choosing, he is electing some but not all. And that's the first thing you just kind of got to go, what? What? I, I don't understand that. I mean, we kind of recoil at that. But that's, what, that's what's happening here. He says, your offspring will be through Isaac. I've chosen Isaac. I've elected Isaac. And in doing that, he's narrowing, he's limiting in a way how this is going to play out, how his promise is going to be manifest. And so the question is, can God be counted upon? Yes, he can. If you understand that his plan involves him electing, choosing some, but not all. And you'll see Paul makes it very clear that this is very important to God. Verse 11, for though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand it's very important that God, that we understand that God has elected and chosen his people. 
And he uses Jacob and Esau as an example to show that his choice, and this is really important. Do you notice he's saying that God's choice did not have anything to do with Jacob or Esau? And if we run to either end, this is where we get in trouble. Because if we run to the free will end, and we say that everyone has and is given the option to freely choose God or not or reject him, we get in a little bit of trouble here. Because the idea is to those who believe in free will, they know that not everyone chooses that. But they also believe that God does elect. Well, how does he elect? He elects by looking down the corridor of the future of every person. And to those that he sees that choose him, he elects them. To those that believe in him, he elects them. He chooses them. To those who reject him, he doesn't. But that's, that's not what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying that wasn't in play here. God wants this sense of election that, that it's God's work being done at his uh, prerogative, his plan, and nothing else. As a matter of fact, he says, verse 12, not from works, but from the one who calls. And then he says that crazy thing, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. What is that? Well, remember, there's a Hebrew expression, right? And that is the word when you say, well, Jesus, he, he's, he commanded us that we, we hate father, mother, brother, and sister compared to how we love Christ. And the idea is we're talking about a lesser love. To hate means to love less. As a matter of fact, it means to love less in such a way that what you love most, it looks like hate compared to what you love second most. And, and in a way, that's, that's what uh, Paul is saying here, is that God loved Esau less. He loved Jacob more. And so in a way he rejects Esau as, as the one that he chooses to pass the promise to. He, he elects and he chooses Jacob. Again, in the unconventional way. Now why is that important? What, what does that mean for us? How, what do we take from, from that? Well, I think what we've got to take from it is that election, this idea of election is very important to God because it protects what is running throughout all of scripture and that is salvation comes by grace alone from God. That we do not have anything to do. We cannot do anything to earn or to merit God's forgiveness and our salvation and our eternity with him. And, and that is very important to Paul here. That's very important in, in the idea of, of God choosing. Is it's all on him. He is the author of our salvation from beginning to end. We can take no credit. Now I realize when we're talking about choosing and God's or God's choosing, God's electing, um, we see that play out in, in, in that we see that some people believe and some people don't. And you have to ask yourself, well, why is that? H how do we understand why some people believe and some people don't as, as we see that in every day? And if you keep asking that question, what you're going to get to very quickly is you kind of kick that question, that can down the street, is you're going to come to the fact that, well, it's free will. People have a free will. They either choose to believe in God or they reject him. It's that simple. But is it really that simple? Why do those that reject him reject him? Why do they do that? And you can, you can try to answer it. But if you keep peeling on your back, you're, you're going to come back to, at some point, you're going to get to the bottom of that onion as you peel it back. And you're going to say, they must not have had what those who 
didn't reject him have? So at some point you look at, well, why did those who believe in him believe in him? Did they have something about them? Were they, were they more humble? Was there a virtue about them or something? Were they, were they just more deserving in some kind of way? Why did they say yes and others said no? And so the problem you bump into, is if, if you stay at one end of this, is that, that, that God is really not fully sovereign and in control because he's, he's kind of dependent upon a decision made by somebody else or, 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 or something about them that, that God says, okay, you're deserving. And, and, and that's what Paul is trying to, to get away from. He, it's, it's, he's been arguing previously, it's not justification by works. You have nothing to do with your salvation. It has everything to do with God. God is the finisher of your salvation. Now, I know you might think, okay, well, what if we just got rid of this idea of election, of God choosing ahead of time, and, and, and how, how can we, if we just set that off to the side, does that really answer the question, why do some believe and some don't? It, it really doesn't. <laughs> I mean, think about it for a minute. If you're just saying, okay, it's, it's based on someone's free will and they can freely choose God or they can freely reject God. And to those that are rejecting God, do you, you can kind of think about it this way. Well, why does God want anybody to reject him? Can't God kind of intervene? Someone is making a decision to reject him just like a parent sees a child that's, that has a free will and is making decisions. But when they see that child become, uh, uh, get around something dangerous or the decision they're making is, is dangerous, they swoop in and they, they kind of intervene in their free will out of love. Why doesn't God do that? And so you really don't get away from this question as to why some people choose him and some don't. It's a mystery. It goes in the Isaiah 55 bucket, as hard as that is. But Paul has a resounding, God can be counted upon. You don't understand what he's doing. He's working through the remnant. He's, 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 he's choosing and he's electing real people of God. And he's doing that because he, he alone is the author and perfecter of our salvation. And, and that, we got to get that. And election helps us to grasp that, helps us to understand that. So that leads to question number two now. In light of that, verse 14. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the, scriptures, for the scripture tells Pharaoh... I raised you up for this reason so that I may display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he shows mercy to those he wants to and he hardens those he wants to harden. And that reference to harden goes back to Pharaoh and the Exodus when God was saving his people out of Egypt. Uh, the plagues and all that God was doing and, and it talked about how Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And, and that's, what he's, that's, that's the reference that Paul's making in, in, in answering this question. And I'll come back to it in just a moment. But what I want you to notice is Paul's answer to the question, is God unjust? Is he unfair that he chooses some to show his grace and mercy? Isn't that unfair? Isn't that unjust that God would choose only some? And that's in essence what this question is asking and it comes naturally out of the fact that he chose Jacob and not Esau and how do we understand that? Well here's the amazing thing about it is Paul does not give an answer to the question. 
Why does he not? Look, what, what's his answer? He goes, absolutely not. So you're ready. Okay, here it comes. It's an answer. I'm going to fully understand. This is awesome. And he goes back to the book of Exodus, what, what he told, um, or Genesis, what he, what he told Moses. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And that is actually the book of Exodus. Well, well how is that an answer, Paul? Do you know why he doesn't answer the question the way we think he should answer the question? It's because the question is flawed. There's a problem here. What's the problem about saying, hey, it seems kind of unjust and unfair that God's showing mercy to some and not others? Do you recognize the flaw? My friends, mercy is not something that anyone is owed, it's given. It's received. Do you know what is owed? Do you know what is deserved? That's justice. (laughs) I don't think we want God's justice. I don't think we want what we deserve or what we're owed. And so in a way, what Paul is saying is, I know you're thinking about that question. And and he's, you know, he's asking it somewhat with people in mind as as this teaching. He goes, you're thinking in the wrong direction. You're, 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 um, You're thinking that God's not being just Because you don't understand mercy. And so it's important that he, that we recognize that mercy is something that we, we receive. It is something that God gives and he says, I'll give it however I want to give it. So to the answer the question, is God being unjust? No, God doesn't owe anyone mercy. Not at all. All deserve condemnation. So here's the thing, if God doesn't owe anyone mercy, then that means he can give everybody mercy, he can give some people mercy, or he can give no mercy, and he hasn't done one thing wrong. Think about if, uh, picture yourself, you, you go to a homeless encampment, and you go to feed them, and you, you find maybe a family or two, and, and you begin to feed them. A very merciful, compassionate gesture on your part. Are you being unjust when you don't feed everybody in the camp? Is it unfair for you not to feed everyone in the camp? No, it's not. Because they don't deserve you doing that. And the people that you fed didn't deserve you doing that. But you gave them out of mercy and compassion. You gave it to them. And that's kind of what we have here. If we can kind of get our mind around that is that God does not owe us mercy. We we might want it for everybody. We certainly want it for ourselves. But God is not on the hook to give us mercy or compassion. He says, I'll I'll do it as I want. Now the question becomes, well, how does he choose, right? You you kind of in the back of your mind, you're like, well, how does he choose? How does he make that decision? And, And here's the Isaiah 55 bucket. We don't get a specific answer about that. It's a mystery. What we do know, what we do know is it doesn't come by our performance. It does not come by some part of you that gets God's eye. That's deserving in any way. That we know. Now, to understand it beyond that, we might get a little bit of a hint when he, when he, when he brings up seemingly out of the blue this idea about Pharaoh and his heart being hardened. How do we understand that and its place in chapter 9. Well to do that we kind of need to ask ourselves who hardened Pharaoh's heart? 
If you look at Exodus chapter 3, and, and this is a story about God sending Moses in to save his people who are held captive and in bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt. And God's going to, through Moses, bring his people back out into the promised land that goes back to that promise that he made that the children of the promise and the line of that promise runs through whom God chooses. Now Pharaoh, we have to understand, not a good guy. And Exodus chapter 3 actually says that God says, Pharaoh's not a good guy. He's not going to let you go. He's not going to let my people go. And then in chapter 4 he says, I will harden his heart. And that's a part of the process. That's a part of this mission that he sends Moses on. And then what's really interesting is you, there's these 10 plagues. And you go, go look at them in Exodus chapter, in, in, in the book of Exodus. There's these 10 plagues that Pharaoh endures it's God's way of saying, let my people go. And what's really interesting is in most of the plagues, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is ambiguous. It doesn't say God did it. It doesn't say Pharaoh did it. All it simply says is Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Now, after the seventh plague... There is a reference to, and, and you can look, I think it's verses 34 and 35. You can go there, and, and when you read that, coupled with, again, it says, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. You can make an argument for the vast majority of those references really were Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And there's actually one plague in which it specifically says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. There's also another one that says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so when you say, who hardened Pharaoh's heart... Well, God didn't. God, is, God really isn't to blame for this. It's kind of like Romans chapter 1. Remember what happened in Romans chapter 1. God's judging the sinful people. And what does he do? He says he turns them over to their sins. And that's what God was doing with Pharaoh. He turned an already hardened heart over to the evil ways that Pharaoh acted towards his people. So the important thing that I want to bring out of this is that God does not turn loving people into evil people. But he turns evil people over to their evil ways. That's really important. All right? God does not turn good people into evil people. But he turns evil people over to their evil ways. He does not create people for the sole purpose of destruction. He does not create people for the sole purpose of sending them to hell. He just does not do that. Now the other thing he does when you look at this is, he says this about Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason so that I may display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. In God's sovereignty, in his plan, in the people that he has not chosen, or that he has not foreknown, that he's not predestined, that he's not called, that he's not uh, justified and glorified, it's the others are they outside of, of God's sovereignty and his plan? Not at all. He, he uses them. As he turns them over, he's able to use the free choices they're making to bring glory to his name. And he did it with Pharaoh. You see, it was Pharaoh's hardened heart that made God one plague after another show his power and his glory. And as he brought all of them out of Egypt and into Israel, God got the glory. And when the Jews were 
clamoring and calling for Jesus to be crucified. The evil that was in them, the rejection of Christ. God used that in order for Christ to be crucified so we could see the glory of Jesus' sacrificial substitutionary death. Glory through evil. And, and, or I should say glory through letting evil be evil. And then certainly we have the evil of the Jews as they harden their hearts toward towards God we see in verses 25 through 29 this is where the Gentiles the non-Jews enter the picture it was, a, it was as, as a result of, of the hardening of their hearts that the Gentiles the non-Jews were brought into the family and so this this question as to whether God is just or not he he is and God does not turn people over good people over to evil he just takes what's already there and he works with it to bring out his glory. Third question. Let's finish up here. And uh, I think you'll see with this idea of, okay, there's some hardening going on here. God, God holds us accountable to, to the fact that he, that he hardens people. And question uh, number three, verse 19. You will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? And what if God desiring to display his wrath and to make his power known endured with much patience objects of wrath ready for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory on us, the ones he also called not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles. So the, the, the third question that, and I realize there's probably more in your mind than this, but the third question is, is God unjust to hold people accountable? If he's hardening people's hearts, if he's, if he's choosing and electing some, then is he being unjust to hold them accountable? Now, notice how Paul answers that question. The first thing he says is we have to be really careful when we're asking God questions. Ask questions. But here he's talking about how you can ask in a way that he refers to it as talking back to God. And we've got to be really careful. We're talking to a fin uh, an infinite God and we're finite. And so we've got to be really careful when we're questioning him. And, we, and when, we, when we begin to question him as if we think we know more. Or as if something is just doesn't make any sense at all. And it seems ludicrous as, as we read it from God's word. We've got to be really, really careful. And let God be God. And let the things that we understand about God kind of carry the day in things that we don't understand. But notice what he does to answer this question. He uses this analogy of a, of a person making pottery and then he talks about objects of wrath and objects of mercy and the two of those really kind of bring together an answer to this question how can God find us accountable if this is indeed the case in his sovereignty well let's talk about the potter first and what I want you to notice about the potter is he he's, it talks about that there's a lump of clay and he says that the potter makes out of that lump of clay pottery or pots that are honorable which would be the those who have believe in God, those who are objects of his mercy, which he says a little bit later. And then you have the, the pottery that is dishonorable. And that would be those who have rejected God and who he speaks of as objects of wrath. You know, just the next verse. So that's what you're looking at. But what's really important here, and, and don't overlook this. There's already a lump of clay there. And Paul is saying that God takes what's already there and he fashions it 
how his plan is going to work. So Paul is not creating, meaning taking nothing and making something. Paul is making, taking something that's already there and making it into something. And that's different. Because what that's saying is that God does not create when he's creating humanity. He does not create people for destruction. He does not do that. He takes people who are already hardened in their hearts. And he uses those people in his plan. But they're already hardened. He takes what's already there and he uses it for his purpose. But then the second thing, and I think this is very noticeable. I, I, when I was reading it, I imagine it didn't jump out at you. But let me read it slowly, and I think it might. And I'm going to read verse 23 first. He's talking about objects of mercy. He goes, and what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory? That expression, that he prepared Let's see if that's in verse 22 as it relates to objects of wrath. And what if God desiring to display his wrath and to make his power known endured with much patience objects of wrath ready for destruction. It's not there. It's noticeably absent. And I believe that's intentional. I believe what that is saying is that those, and again this is the tension that, that, that exists between God's sovereignty and human free will. What Paul is saying is that the objects of God's wrath who are accountable to God, they are objects of God's wrath because of the decisions they've made, free decisions they've made. Whereas the objects of mercy who were prepared beforehand, it's like an echo back to Romans chapter 8, 28, 29, and 30. When God says that he foreknew, that he predestined, that he called, that he justified, that he glorified before time. So God chooses and elects those that will be objects of mercy. Because again, salvation is all about God, it is not about you or me. But those who are objects of God's wrath, they bring upon themselves, based on the decisions that they have made and the free will they have to make those decisions. So the, the answer to the question, is God unjust to hold people accountable? No. That God's sovereignty does not negate human free will. And the consequences that come from the evil decisions that those who are free can make. Now I do want to note parenthetically for a moment. That it says that God endures with much patience. Might that be a little tip of the hat to free will? Where God is, is enduring, hoping that enough time will elapse. That those who have not chosen yet will choose. So again, I think we can see both in here. And how do we allow the tension of both to exist? Now, let me add one step onto this. And, and that is... I think it's important we listen and, and where we struggle and I struggle with you and we're thinking about salvation here. We're thinking about mercy and compassion that God has on people. And because we're selfish in nature, it's the human condition, we think about us and we think what's for us. And we want for us mercy, we want for us compassion, we want for us salvation. And when we hear things that jeopardize that or confuse us about that, we don't like that. And, and it's because in our, in our sinful condition and in our human condition, 
We have put ourselves as the center of our lives. We're like the sun, if you will, of our solar system. And that's not who is the center of our lives. Paul says that God does these things, his election, his choosing. And he describes it this way in verses 22 and 23. He describes it as desiring to display his wrath and make his power known. Verse 22. Verse 23. To make known the riches of his glory. You see, what needs to be the center of our lives is the glory of God and not us. And so Paul is saying that God does these amazing things. He does these things that we cannot comprehend, we cannot understand. He takes even the wrath that will be upon the objects of wrath, God's judgment, God's destruction that will be on the objects of wrath. He says that will show my power. That will show my glory. And it will show his glory in particular. And, and the contrast is when, you, when, you, when you're the object of mercy and the backdrop is the doom of others who do not believe in God, then the mercy you receive becomes infinitely greater. And the mercy giver becomes infinitely more amazing. And, and the point in all this is that God wants the glory. Not us. Nothing we can do. And if you think about it, if God believes, and he does believe, that he is the ultimate source of joy and happiness and peace and contentment and meaning and love. And in order for him to be all of that in your life and my life, he has to be at the center of our lives. His glory and our awe of him has to be in the center of our lives. It's not a spoke. He's the center. And if he does not seek to be that in your life and my life, knowing what he knows and how important it is, then how loving is he? And so he is driving through this, this idea of election to get us to see that he alone is the glory we need in our lives to be the people that God wants us to be and for his plan to move forward so I know you got more questions than that I, I wrestled with this thing this has been the hardest chapter of, of, of preparing and it's created a whole lot more questions for me that I'm going to spend some more time on but let me just challenge you this week in light of what we just read I would say when you see what God has done and you see how he's orchestrated everything. If you're a follower of Jesus, I would challenge you, worship him. Worship him. Express praise and worship. We're going to sing a couple more songs here in a moment. Just let it go. Just, just, just let, don't worry about it. He builds around you and just think about who this God is that you're singing to and you're singing about. Worship him. Secondly is I would challenge you to live humbly. When you think about it, do you really think God does, owes you or you deserve salvation? No. God has given it to us. Now we have to choose to repent. We have to choose to, to believe. And that's important. That's where we humble ourselves and acknowledge the need we have for a Savior. Thirdly is to confidently tell others about Jesus. This is amazing when you think about it. If God is working and calling people, you know that some of the people you're talking to are the people he's working on and calling. And you can be emboldened and have the confidence to share your faith. And then lastly is to trust the assurance of God's love. Just think about this for a moment. Every one of us, every one of us, we want to be loved 
for something about us. Our sense of humor, our compassion, our, our gentleness. Whatever. We want someone to notice us and love us for that. But my friends, that is so dangerous. And we want the same for God. We want God to notice something about us and to love us for that. Because that helps our insecurity and, 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 the, and the fragile identities that we have. But do you realize the moment you do that and I do that, we make that the idol. And we, we guard and protect that to the death. And the, 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 the reality of it is it might change. We might lose that. And then we'll feel like we've lost the love of the person who loved us for that reason. Whether it's someone horizontally or vertically, God. And God says No. God says, I choose to have mercy on those I choose to have mercy. I choose to show compassion on those I choose to show compassion. Meaning that the love that you want and that God has, it is not in you, it is in him. And you can be assured of that. You cannot lose it. You have it no matter what because it comes from him. And that is the power of this teaching. I hope I've done it in a way that it sinks in. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your patience and mercy with us, with this amazingly challenging chapter. God, I'm thankful today is over for me in that way. And God, I pray that the words that I've spoken, I pray the ones, Lord God, that really matter most have made their ways into the hearts and lives of everyone here and online. To those who are followers of Jesus and to those who are not, Lord. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's worship again together. Would you please stand?